What a homecoming tale so far, full of yearning for a lost past and a feeling of home. And what vivid descriptions of Italy. I can feel the hot, dry dust of the earth coming through the pages. I'm Roger, and this is Bookshook. And today's podcast is all about the first half of The Moon and the Bonfire by Cesare Pevesi, published in 1950. So, the idea of the podcast is that we'll read the first half of a book together, and then I'll share my thoughts and yours on the first half, maybe make a few predictions, and then at the end of the book, when it's done, I'll publish part two of the podcast, and we'll decide whether it's one we'd recommend to a friend or not. Of course, you don't have to read anything at all. If you're into Audible, then you can listen to the book, or you can do neither, of course, and just join me for the ride. I'll be summarising what happens in the book just for you, but be aware there may be spoilers. You can leave a comment or start a conversation at the Bookshook YouTube channel, or send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. Welcome to Bookshook. So I've read up to chapter 16, which is roughly halfway. We start off with the narrator who's unnamed. We find out later he's called Agio or the eel. He's come back to his birth village, quote, to find somewhere to belong so that you are worth more than the usual round of the seasons and last a bit longer. And the narrator eel was fostered to Virgilia and Padrino alongside their two daughters, Angelina and Julia, for some money. Padrino made money by taking in foster children. They were, quote, miserably poor, and his stepmother died when he was 10 years old. Now, he notices that the hazels have been removed from the croft in Gaminella. So he's, he's going back to where he grew up, and he had these great love for these hazels, which appears as a, a kind of recurring theme all the way through the first half, but they've been taken down. Quote, is it possible that at 40, after all my travelling, I still don't know what it is to have a village? It feels like he, he doesn't really have a home. Newto, his friend, has travelled with his knowledge of music, art and the clarinet. Quote, Newto, who compared with me, has never been far from Salto, says that if you want to make a life of it in the valley, you mustn't ever leave it. Yet he's the one who, when he was still a young lad, got the length of playing the clarinet in the band beyond Canelli, and as far away, even a Spignor and a Vada, over there where the sun rises. We speak about it from time to time and he laughs. His friend really has travelled maybe even greater distances with his knowledge of, of music. And it reminds me a little bit of Emily Dickinson, actually, who's stuck in Amherst, but a space traveller in her mind. She travelled so far in her mind. Anyway, he stays in the village uh, in the summer in this nice little hotel in the centre of the village, and he reminisces on his past. And Newto, his friend, muses on why he gave up playing the clarinet in the bands. When his father died, that was it, he decided to give up, and he became a carpenter. We've got this very rose-tinted, romantic and nostalgic view of Newto by the narrator. He's absolutely in awe of Newto for being a musician, I think. Then we hear a little bit about his time in America. When he's in America, we learn that he went to prison. This is a very nostalgic chapter. Even when he's back in Italy, he's very nostalgic. So we learn he went to prison and has a very jaded view. Everyone else is having a better time. It doesn't seem to be particularly nice to women. For example, Nora, who he just gives up on. He meets up with Newto. And they complain that American music and women are no good. 
so all the way through this first half, he has this incredible yearning for something. Quote, That night, before going home to Oakland, I went and smoked a cigarette on the grass, far from the main road where the cars were passing. There was no moon, but a sea of stars, as many stars as there were frogs and chicalas. Even if Nora had let me fling her down on the grass that night, it wouldn't have been enough for me. The frogs would have gone on croaking and the cars would have gone hurtling on down the hill, gathering speed, and America would still have finished where the road ended, would still have finished in these brightly lit cities on the coast, in the dark among the scent of gardens and pine trees. I realised that these stars weren't my stars and that they frightened me, like Nora and the customers. The bacon and eggs, the good pay, the oranges as big as watermelons went for nothing. They were like the crickets and the frogs. Was it worthwhile having come? He reflects that America, quote, never had enough, and he doesn't seem to have enough. So here in Newto talk of, quote, getting away to find out your own fate. They discuss communism. Uh, Newto didn't join the communists, but he is sympathetic. Quote, they'd have burnt my house. And he did feed and protect a wounded communist. They reflect on how harrying rich patrons, e.g. Suomateo, can end in quote, cutting throats and burning villages. So just to put Eel in context, he left 20 years ago for America and now he's returned post-war in about 1946-47, I guess. So Eel has some wealth and experience in farming and he asks Valino whether he took away the hazels from the place that he grew up in Gaminella. So Valino is a character who bought the croft in Gaminello. And he travels to his old family home with Nuto because actually Valino has a problem with, his, I think, his wine casket and because Nuto is a carpenter, he's trying to get him to help him. And he comes across a poor boy uh, who's about 10 years old and he has rickets. who has got a very, very bad limp. And he muses to himself that it could have been him 30 years ago. The boy is called uh, Sinto and he's actually Valino's nephew. And the woman there is the sister-in-law. Quotes, I would still be living the same life as Valino or Sinto if at 13, Padrino had not left. Quotes, everything was changed and yet the same. He reminisces with Sinto as to what the farm was like. Sinto actually says that he found a dead German in the gully during the war. Now, my thoughts at this point are, you know, Eel definitely sees himself in this young boy. And will he help him in any way to lift him out of poverty? Because Eel, it would appear, has earned quite a lot of money during his time away in America. Uh, he wants to show the boy that I was just like you, but will he do more? And at the moment, I'm not convinced. He seems very self-absorbed uh, and melancholy, but I'm, I'm hoping he will sort of stretch out an arm of help towards this young boy. Anyway, we carry on. Um, they find Valino soaring. Valino talks about the Germans, uh, saying, quote, no good came of them when they were alive. Eel reflects that Nuto viewed the war uh, quite positively, in comparison, because um, uh, Newto says, quote, the world is a botched job and needs remaking. Eel continues walking with Chinto, chatting, and he says, is it your fault if a father gives away a son? Talking of himself, quote, I have known bastards who have bought big farms. And then uh, Eel does a lot of philosophising. He says, as a boy, I was preparing, quote, to live without a home of my own and always hope that there would be a village fairer and richer beyond the hills. There's always this nostalgic view of, of something better beyond the hills. Quote, when you're far from home, you work because you 
you have to and you make your fortune without meaning to. To make your fortune means just this, to go far away and come back like me, grown rich and big and fat and free to do what I wanted. Well, lucky guy. Going away obviously was one of the best things that he ever did. Eel gets chatting with Cavalieri, who lost his son to suicide. He's a lawyer and a bit of a miserable lawyer who finds it difficult to run his estate. And then Eel chats with Chinte, and Chinte says, Bonfires make the land rich. And this is where we get the first inkling of the title of the novel. Quotes, he must get away and get out of the rut when he's talking about Chinto. And I'm with you, Eel, basically. That's <laughs> what I'm thinking. Come on, you, you have the influence and the money. Try and get Chinto, this poor lame boy, out of this rut that he's in. You can see that he's exactly the same as you were about 30 years ago. Come on, you can help him. And then we have more about the moon and the bonfires. Chinto says, quote, they're quite right to do it. He's talking about the bonfires. They awaken the earth. Newto has no real experience of farming. He's a carpenter, yet he's romantic. He's got this idea that there's these sort of superstitious things that can take place that can help with the land. He thinks he knows why the farmers are doing the bonfires. And I'm thinking, well, surely Eel, out of all the people, should know that because he is actually a farmer. Quote, the moon, we must believe in the moon, said Newto. Try to cut down a pine tree when the moon is full and you will be eaten up by worms. Remember, he's a carpenter, not a farmer. (laughs) And he's telling this to Eel. You should wash a grape vat when the moon is new. As for grafting, unless you do it when the moon is only a few days old, it doesn't take. Then I said, this is Eel talking, then I said I'd heard a few stories in my travels, but these were the most far-fetched of the lot. There was no use having so much to say about the government and the priest's sermons if he was going to believe in these superstitions like his great-great-grandmother. It was then that Newto said very quietly that a superstition is a superstition only when it does harm to someone, and if anyone were to use the moon and the bonfires to rob the peasants and keep them in the dark, then he would be the backward one and should be shot in the square." But before I could speak, I must become a countryman again. An old man like Valino will know nothing else, but he will know about the land. Very superstitious and intangible, really. Anyway, we learn that Eel's foster family are all dead and dispersed. Uh, Eel goes to Canelli, where, quote, the season gave place to season, not year to year. And that is uh, where the farmstead of La Mora is. So this idea of thinking about the seasons rather than the years is a very interesting one. So tied to the land, thinking about each season changing. I guess as a farmer or someone working on the farm, that that is how you'd be thinking about time. Eel contemplates his time in the USA. Quote, the more places you see, the less you belong to any of them reminiscing on his time in America and he breaks down in the desert he sees a homeless Mexicans and he thinks of the Mexicans quote the world had come to drive them from their home with hunger or the railway or their revolutions or their oil wells and now they were going hither and thither behind the mule and then we've got this wonderful description of his time in America breaking down in the desert and coming across a desert train quote Then came the train. It began by looking like a horse, a horse with its cart raised up on the rough stones, and then I had glimpses of the light. For a moment, I almost hoped it was a car or the cartload of Mexicans. 
Then its din filled the whole plain and it gave off showers of sparks. I wonder what the serpents and scorpions say about it. The train came almost on top of me, standing on the road, lighting up with its windows, the track, the cactus plants, a terrified animal that bounded away, and as it tore along, banging from side to side, sucking in the air, I felt as if it were slapping me in the face. I had waited for it so long, but when darkness closed in again... And the sand began to hiss around me. I said to myself that not even in a desert do these people leave you in peace. If I'd wanted to run away and hide tomorrow so that I wouldn't be interned, I could feel already the hand of the policeman on my shoulder, like the shock I got from the train. This was America. And then... Two dead fascist spies are being discussed because they were discovered, they're found and they're buried. There's a bit of a political discussion about how guilty they were. Eel philosophizes on the priest giving a sermon to these two fascist spies. He says, quote, It was a very long time since I had heard a priest say on the steps of the church in the hot sunshine, and to think that when I was a boy and Virgilia took us to Mass, I thought that the voice of the priest was a thing like thunder or the sky or the seasons, which helped the fields and the harvest for the salvation of the living and the dead. Now I notice that the dead helped him. We really shouldn't grow old or get to know the world. I think that's a wonderful quote. Growing up and, and realising that these figures you held so loftily actually shouldn't be held quite as loftily. And then Newton and Neil discuss Saw Matteo's daughter who died as a spy. Her name was Santa. Anyway, he, he goes on and talks about how he feels when he's in the village. He has this wonderful idea that he should be able to shout to the heavens, I'm back and everyone should accept him. But it doesn't really work out like that. Quote... What was left behind was like a piazza the day after the fair or a vineyard after the grape harvest or going back to eat alone after someone has let you down. He carries on and he philosophizes on growing up again. Quote, I thought it was only being able to do difficult things like buying a pair of oxen or calculating the price of grapes or using the threshing machine. I didn't know that growing up meant to go away, to get old, to see people die, to come back and find La Mora as it was now. So at 13, Eel starts to work at this place called La Mora. Padrino's crops are destroyed in a hailstorm, and so Padrino has to go somewhere else to find work. And so that's why Eel ends up at La Mora. Quote, It was Emilia who told me I was like an eel. <laughs> so that's where he got the name Eel. This woman, Emilia, works at La Mora. So he settles into La Mora and they have Christmas, and he talks about these roast chestnuts that he has. And it seems like a much nicer place than Gaminella. He learns many things at La Mora. Eel reflects on life at La Mora and, and with Saw Matteo, who is a gentleman. He remembers the wood shavings still there of, of Nuto's father, his joinery shop in Canelli. And uh, he is in awe of uh, the Signora. It sounds much more fun than life at Gaminella with Padrino, that is for sure. So that's really the first half of the book. And there are some, some interesting ideas to come out of it. Maybe the most important one, well, to me, certainly, probably yearning, that, that wanting for something intangible. He's got this wonderful description of America, which seems to encompass his feelings about that. Quote, In the dark, among the scents of gardens and pine trees, I realised that these stars weren't my stars, and that they frightened me, like Nora and the customers. The bacon and eggs, the good pay, the oranges as big as watermelons went for nothing. They were like the crickets and the frogs. Was it worthwhile having come? 
Where could I go now? Throw myself off the breakwater? Now I understood why every so often a girl was found strangled in a car or in a room or at the end of an alley. Maybe these people too wanted to fling themselves down on the grass and be in tune with the frogs and possess a bit of ground the length of a woman and really sleep there and not be afraid. And yet it was a big country. There was enough for everyone. There were women, there was land, there was money, but no one had enough of them. No one ever stopped, no matter how much he had. And the fields and the vineyards were like public gardens, artificial flower beds like you see at stations, or else uncultivated parched land, cast iron mountains. It wasn't a country where a man could settle down and rest his head and say to the others, Here I am, for good or ill. For good or ill, let me live in peace. This was what was frightening. The people didn't even know one another. When you crossed the mountains, you saw at every turn that no one had ever settled there or put a hand on them. That was why they would beat up a drunk man and put him in prison and leave him for dead. And it wasn't only their drink that was bad, but their women too. Then one fine day, one of them wanted to touch something to make his name, and so he strangled a woman, shot her in her sleep, bashing her head with a spanner. I think there's a clue to maybe why he was in prison there. Some kind of guilty conscience coming out there. Quotes, but no one had enough of them. America's not even big enough for this character. And then there's a lot in the beginning of the book of him yearning for this life that Newto had as a musician. Quote, if I could play as well as you, I said, I wouldn't have gone to America. Nothing seems to be enough for Aggie yet. We've got this another quote here. Quote, what does it all mean that you need a village if only for the pleasure of leaving it? Your own village means that you are not alone, that you know there's something of you in the people and the plants and the soil. That even when you're not there, it waits to welcome you. But it isn't easy to stay there quietly. For a year now, I have had an eye on it and have taken a trip out there from Genoa whenever I could. But it still evades me. Time and experience teach you these things. Is it possible that at 40, after all my travelling, I still don't know what it is to have a village? There's one thing I can't get used to. Everyone here thinks I've come back to buy a house for myself, and they call me the American and show off their daughters. This ought to please a man who left without even a name, and indeed it does, but it isn't enough. Nothing seems to be enough for Gia. And we also have some yearning from Newto. He's desperate to put the world to rights. Quote, That idea of his that things must be understood and put right, that the world is badly made and it's everyone's job to change it. So he's kind of paired with Eel in a way, because Eel's always searching for something better as well. Just on the same page, 45, we've got this quote. This is Eel talking. Quote, I was preparing myself for what fate had in store for me, to live without a home of my own and always hope that there would be a village fairer and richer beyond the hills. They're both yearning for something. So, very important theme, yearning. There's some lovely descriptions of nature. The heat of Italy... Listen to this. It's wonderful. Quote, The sun is fierce up in these hills. I had forgotten how its light is flung back off the bare patches of volcanic rock. Here the heat doesn't so much come down from the sky as rise up underfoot from the earth, from the trench between the vines, which seems to have devoured each speck of green and turned it to stem. I like this heat. It has a smell, and I'm part of the smell. There's so many grape harvests in it, so many hay harvests, so many piles of stripped leaves, so many tastes, and so many desires that I didn't know I had any longer. And then we've got this wonderful description of the desert. I remember there's the railway track goes through the desert. 
quote, I had time to examine all the stones in the railway track, all the sleepers, the fluff from a withered thistle, the thick stems of two cactus plants in the hollow below the road. The stones in the track were burnt by the trains to that colour they have all over the world. A little wind screeched along the road, bringing a smell of salt. It was cold like winter. The sun was already down. The plane was disappearing. I knew there were poisonous lizards and centipedes in holes in the plane. In here the serpent was supreme. The wild dogs began to howl. They weren't the danger I feared, but they made me feel I was in the heart of America, in a desert, three hours by car from the nearest station. And night was coming on. The only sign of civilization was the railway line and the row of posts. If only the train would pass. Several times already I'd leant across a telegraph pole and listened to the humming of the wires as boys do. The current came from the north and was going to the coast. I began to study the map again. The dogs kept on howling in the grey sea that was the plain, a sound which cleft the air like a cock crow and made me feel cold and ill at ease. It was lucky I'd brought the bottle of whisky with me and I kept on smoking to calm my nerves. When it was dark, really dark, I lit the taillight. I didn't dare to switch on the headlights, if only a train would pass. Belonging and place. Quote, you need a village, if only for the pleasure of leaving it. Your own village means that you are not alone, that you know something of you in the people and the plants and the soil, that even when you are not there, it waits to welcome you. And I've already mentioned the hazers at Gaminella. They're referenced constantly and they're gone now. And someone before me reading the book has underlined, quote, but I had not expected not to find hazers anymore. That was the end of everything. And they've written in blue fountain pen, his only happy memory. And I agree to an extent that those hazers do seem to be a, a symbol of life with Padrino, a tough life at Gaminella, but one that's really emblazoned on his imagination. So questions from the first half. It seems like he must have murdered someone in America and he was sent to jail. We need to find out what exactly happened with Eel in the second half. Another question, will Anguillo help Chinto, the poor lame boy, in any way? And at the moment, I don't think he will. He appears to have forgotten about him for the last few chapters, at least. Eel is very self-absorbed. And another question, will Anguillo continue to reminisce on his past? I've written here, most definitely, he will continue to reminisce on his past. I'd like to share some other people's thoughts on last month's book, Where the Crawdads Sing. There were some really wonderful comments on the web and on Goodreads, and I'd just like to share a few of them with you. Nilufa's comments on the audiobook version were so evocative. She says, quote, When you listen to this book, you feel like the story is narrated by nature. The swamp, the trees, all those rare kinds of birds, breezing wind, wild animals roaring. That's all out there, and you can hear them, smell them, imagine them in your mind. It's so alive, realistic, rejuvenating. And Hines said of Caius Shack, quote, It's a yearn to all those things one could compile and put in a place that perhaps then, bitterly or sweetly, could be called home. There were also some very interesting critiques too. Editor and novelist Betsy Robinson said, quote, I found the writing of this romance slash murder mystery to be painfully split, almost as if there were two different authors, an experienced one for the vivid narrative and an amateur for dialogue and character development, which in fact may be the case since the author's an experienced nature writer and this is her first novel. And Jessica says, quote, on both the broad strokes and the specific details, nothing here really rings true. So some really varied reviews on where the crawdads sing. If you have any comments that you'd like to add about 
the moon and the bonfires or where the crawdice sings, I would love to hear them. If you have any further comments, please email me. Email bookshook at yahoo.com or leave a comment at the Bookshook YouTube channel. I'd also love suggestions for future books to read together. Maybe there's been one sitting on your shelf for ages which you haven't got around to reading and you just need that push to get started. Talking of next books, after I publish part two of The Moon and the Bonfire, the next podcast will be the first half of East of Eden by John Steinbeck. So get that one at the ready if you can. Anyway, I look forward to discussing the final part of The Moon and the Bonfire at the next episode. See you then. 